From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, Georgia Republicans are on the verge of passing a political map that could defy a federal judge's order to create a new majority black congressional district. The new map instead threatens the seat of third-term Congresswoman Lucy McBath. The Democrats' top advisor joins us this morning. I'm Patricia Murphy. Georgia Senate Republicans voted on a resolution to support the Atlanta Police Training Center, forcing Democrats to declare where they stand on the controversial project. And I'm Bill Nygut. The Republican field is narrowing as the next GOP debate looms in neighboring Alabama. We'll take stock of where the race for president stands as attention turns south. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Uh, I know, Patricia, me and you have been spending a lot of time together down at the Capitol doing the special session. Uh, we've said this before, but it's one of those special sessions where it seems like no one wants to be there. Democrats don't want to be there. Republicans don't want to be there this close to the holiday season. But it does seem like a dry run for what we'll see in January when they're all back. It definitely seems like a dry run for January. I mean, I think we're getting a big preview, actually. Governor Kemp held a very formal press conference with all sorts of leaders behind him about his tax proposal that he's got coming out. Um, we've seen a number of resolutions introduced in the state house and Senate that really feel like a mailer waiting to be made. Um, but there was the Capitol Christmas tree lighting oh, yeah. this week, which was so <laughs> festive and lovely. And everybody kind of put away their angst and anger for just a few minutes and listen to the Atlanta Boys Choir. It's like, that's the kind of stuff at the Capitol that I just love. And everybody kind of stopped what they were doing and they were peering over the balconies to see more. And then all the little school children who would come to visit the Capitol were just trying to get a peek of the Christmas tree as it was being lit. It was just such a lovely <laughs> break in the tension for one shining <laughs> moment. And Bill, what was really cool about it was we saw a friend of the show, Representative Syra Draper there, and she was kind of sitting in the front row. And I just thought she was a big fan of the Boys Choir, but it turns out her son was one of the members of oh, the Boys Choir. Oh, that's wonderful. That yeah. But Greg, I really want to commend you for something. You took a big hit Saturday afternoon, Saturday uh, evening. I don't want to talk about you it. You know, University of Georgia <laughs> loses to Alabama and then... The fatal blow is eliminated from the championship series. But I want to commend you on maintaining such a positive spirit in the midst of all that. I expected you to drag in here depressed and morbid, but you're managing to keep on keeping on. It turns out two back-to-back -back <laughs> national championship victories will do that to you, right? If, if this was back in 2019 when, we, when Georgia lost to Alabama in the national championship game, I was— just in a funk for a couple of days, at least maybe a week or two. Now with the two victories and a pretty great season to still talk about, you know, the one loss was a nail biter against Alabama, otherwise undefeated after what, 29 victories in a row. Um, and in an orange bowl in Miami that I will not be attending, but an orange bowl in Miami against Florida state, which should have also been in the college football yeah. playoff. It's not a bad way to end the season. This is politically Georgia from the Atlanta journal constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.
Lucy McBath won her first election to the U.S. House back in 2018 by defeating Republican incumbent Karen Handel in a suburban Atlanta district. In 2021, Republicans redrew those district lines to turn McBath's district into a conservative stronghold, and Lucy McBath ran next door and beat fellow Democrat Carolyn Bordeaux to keep her seat. Now, once again, top Republicans are overhauling her district, district, this time after a federal judge ordered the creation of one additional majority black area for the state. Here to talk about it all is Jake Orvis, one of Congresswoman McBath's senior advisors. Jake, thanks for joining us. Greg, thanks so much for having me on the show. And I should say, congrats on the new show. This is incredible. We're all excited. Bill, we're so excited to have you back on air. It's belated, but congrats. And we're <laughs> thanks. thanks for joining us. Well, <laughs> before we jump into the redistricting and what it means for your boss, talk to us a little about yourself and how you joined the Congresswoman's political team. Yeah, so I originally grew up in Statesboro, Georgia, and I went to Georgia Tech for college. I never realized prior to being in college that I could even work in politics. And once I realized that was a career field, I thought, who in their right mind would ever do that? And many years <laughs> later, here I am. I first met the Congresswoman in 2018 and was with her for some of her earliest races and been with her ever since. As anyone who works in politics will tell you, that's a very long time to work for one person. Yeah. But it's it's been it's it's been my proudest accomplishment thus far, and she truly is incredible to work for. Okay, let's get to the gut of what happened first, and then we'll go deeper into what it means and all that. But the new map that was unveiled just this past Friday creates a new majority black district on Atlanta's west side, just as the federal judge ordered. But it did so at the expense of Congresswoman McBath's northeastern Gwinnett-based district, which was a majority-minority district that was now carved into pieces under this proposed map, which is expected to be passed by the Republican majority in the, in the Georgia legislature uh, in the next few days. If this map holds, does Lucy McBath plan to switch districts and run again for Congress? Well, I think the first step here, Greg, is waiting to see what the judge says about these maps. All the legal experts that I've spoken with, and it seems to be the consensus of legal experts in the press are that these maps uh, do not pass muster with the judge's order. And so we're going to have to see what he says and then go from there. You know, Jake, um, I do want to, before I ask you this question, say, uh, you know, we had John Barrow on the show a couple of weeks ago. It's beginning to look like Lucy McMath maybe end up competing with uh, Barrow for having her district moved <laughs> as many times as he did. But um, so here's the most important point in all of this, I think. yes. The uh, Republicans did, in fact, create this new black district as required um, by Judge Jones. But he said it has to be an additional black district, not simply shift things around to make that black district uh, separate. Correct? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a legal expert. And the last five months had made me very grateful for that. <laughs> um, and but I. Yeah, I, that's what everybody is saying and all the legal experts I talk to. When you read the order and compare it to the maps, there seems to be a huge disconnect. Patricia? Jake, let's talk a little bit about what the motivations for Republicans might have been related to the 7th District. Um, Lucy McBath's statement said that it was a blatant attempt to make me lose my seat. Um, Republicans in their own hearings have said... 
things just needed to move and shift around. And because the seventh district had a large minority population, but was not majority black, that's why most of the votes came from her district. Do you buy that? Or how much of this do you think is about McBath, who um, I think we all consider a potential statewide candidate down the road? Yeah, I think to get to the start of this, Patricia, you really have to go back to 2018. The congresswoman uh, ran in 2018 in a race nobody expected her to win. No one expected her to win that primary. No one expected her to win that runoff. No one expected her to win that general. And when she won in 2018 against somebody, Karen Handel, who had previously held statewide office in Georgia, Mm. that was a huge accomplishment. Fast forward to 2020, the congresswoman expands her lead to over nine points, making the old sixth district the largest movement in the last 10 years of any congressional district in the country. People forget Mick Romney won that district by 20 points. So her rise in Georgia politics has been huge. And as frustrating as redistricting gets, I can imagine it has to be really frustrating for Republicans to keep attempting to redraw her out. And she keeps coming back three times as strong. Now to kind of follow up on a question that Patricia just asked, Lucy McBath is seen as a 2026 contender. Do you think Republicans are going after someone who's not just a Democratic incumbent in Congress, but also someone who could be a threat statewide down the road? Well, I don't know what they're thinking about the future, but what I can say, they've been very clear about they've, how they've behaved in the past. I mean, this is the party that once sent a package to her elderly mother-in-law in Tennessee. I mean, this the way they've approached Lucy McBath is absolutely desperate, and I, I would expect us to continue to see that moving into the future. Now, we talked in the run-up to 2021, we would trade rumors and buzz and speculation, but it seemed more crystal clear what, they, what Republican lawmakers are trying to do in 2021, uh, which is draw Lucy McBath out of her district and force her to, into a race against the then Repu- Democratic incumbent, Carolyn Bordeaux. This time it wasn't as clear. Uh, talk about sort of the rumors and the buzz and, and the environment, the climate that you were, you guys in Lucy McBath's camp were facing because there's so much uncertainty over the last few days about what would happen up until we saw those maps on Friday. Yeah, Craig, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty, but I think because of what she's been through, because of the elections the congresswoman has ran in, because we know how the Republicans have approached her from the very beginning, I think we always have to be ready for anything that can happen. And, and that's exactly what she's done. That's exactly where she is in this. And I think part of what has to be so frustrating for the Republicans is that after she became the first person to flip a House seat in such a long time, she goes to Washington. She has bills that get signed into law by then-President Donald Trump. She has continually passed bills, continually led initiatives that have had a huge impact all across the metro area. And so I think it's pretty obvious why they're coming after her. Dick, you said when we were off camera, it's almost impossible to plan when you when this is the situation facing an incumbent, but you have to continue to to function. So with the situation where it is, where will she campaign? I mean, it's almost 2024. Where where does she campaign? Where do you run ads? We don't even know what she might be doing for a district. How how are you all approaching 2024, which is just three weeks away, really? Yeah, well, from the congresswoman's perspective, she's focused on what she's always been focused on, 
which is doing the work uh, for the people she represents. I mean, even in Gwinnett, she's brought she's brought home millions of dollars in different projects um, throughout the county, and she's continuing to do what she's always done in D.C. Forge ahead on different key bills and pieces of legislation. I think, from our perspective and the political perspective, we're we're going to have to see what the judge says about these maps and go from there. Jake, um, uh, there Democrats uh, uh, would suggest that there's something even larger, of course, than you, um, Lucy McBath's future at stake here. The question becomes: um, Does this map, in fact, uh, potentially lead to court decisions? That could overturn the Voting Rights Act. So, with that in mind, so Jason Torshinsky is a Republican election attorney um, who said that the success of black candidates like a Lucy McBath in a district, the seventh, without a black majority, um, shows that the Voting Rights Act's redistricting protections aren't needed. So, she wins in a coalition district. And the Republican argument is. Um, that a coalition district is perfectly fine, you, but, but it means the Voting Rights Act, which protects the rights of black voters, is, uh, should be, in fact, overturned. That is an enormous stake as this uh, moves forward. Yeah. I mean, again, I would leave those sorts of legal questions to the attorneys, of which, as you all know, there are many. <laughs> and as, as they hash that out, I mean, I think, but to, to your initial point, in your question, I think it is ultimately the people who this is most unfair for are the Georgia voters. I mean, Republicans in the state legislature are playing games, drawing lines, moving people around for the purpose of making their numbers work, for the purpose of taking out Lucy McBath. And Georgia voters in Lucy McBath's case, Lucy McBath's case have repeatedly, overwhelmingly elected her back to Congress. And so they're going to con- continue to play games like this. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, it is the voters who feel it the most. OK, so, Jake, let's shift away from the legal towards your expertise, which is the political. We already have some candidates who are already signaling they're going to run for some sort of district. Jerrica Richardson, the Cobb County Commissioner, is one of them. Um, if these districts hold, which is a huge question, but if these districts hold and they're passed and a judge somehow upholds them, whether it be the federal judge or the 11th Circuit or the Supreme Court, uh, it could be a free-for-all. You could see a number of, of, of Democrats running in these open districts. How, do you, how does Lucy McBath, how does your campaign team, your political team, um, assess this situation? Because there could be even some big-name Democrats who are not incumbents but, but could be running or you, there could be a potential where – Lucy McBath is faced, forced to face another Democratic incumbent. Yeah, I think in a scenario where there's an extra Democratic district from where there is right now, where there's a Democratic district with no incumbent in it, so maybe a special master redraws the lines, or however we get there, there's an extra district with no Democratic incumbent. I think in that scenario, if I, if I had anybody as a client who were interested in running in that district, I would say the best thing to do right now is to lay low, figure out your strategy, see where these maps land. And if there's an open seat without an incumbent, go jump on it. And I think, I know I have, I'm sure everyone here has as well, been receiving calls from the number of people who are thinking about potentially running in an open seat if it were to arise. And I think what I'll say if there's an open seat with no incumbent in it, an extra Democratic seat, the number of people I've been receiving calls from, uh, it does give me hope. I mean, I think there's a lot of great names in there. And I think 
it could be, uh, it gives me hope for the future of the Democratic Party, and I think it's good for our country. So is that your message for Cobb County Commissioner Jerrica Richardson, who announced way back when, she announced months ago, she was she would compete against Rich McCormick before these districts came out? I mean, I can't speak to her in particular, um, but I know there's certainly a lot of names of people for if there's an open seat with no incumbent, they're very interested in running. And again, some of these names are really exciting. And I think, you know, as Democrats, we often do a lot of hand-wringing over what our bench looks like, who we have lined up, who can run in the future. And the people I'm talking to who are potentially interested in an open district with no incumbent makes me really excited. Jake, what has been the reaction among um, state Democratic leaders and Democratic leaders in Washington? Um, Obviously, this has happened to McBath a few times before now. Um, Is she getting commitments from leaders in D.C.? What does that look like and what has the response been from her colleagues? You know, I think everybody here in the state, but also in D.C., is seeing this for what it is, which is a all-hands-on-deck moment. I mean, this is to get through these situations of which Congresswoman McBath has gone through several at this point. It truly does take everybody coming together um, and everybody standing as a solid front. And I think, you know, that is what's happening She is receiving an outpouring of support from people here in the state and also from people nationally because of the work she's done, because of the relationship she has. And I think that we're only going to see that continue and grow as we move through this process. So, Jake, I I, I want to create a hypothetical just to get a sense of how you as a political uh, uh, consultant think about the future of a congresswoman, McBath. Um, Let's say... uh, there are any number of Democrats who jump into whatever this new district could be, and McBath becomes one of any number of candidates. There's been a lot of talk, Greg mentioned it already, that she at some point has been so well-received in this state, is so well-liked, she could be looking at at a statewide race, perhaps in 2026. How important is it, in your thinking as a political consultant, to be an incumbent in 2025, having a seat in Congress, but then to run for a statewide race next time out. In other words, is it possible that McBath could choose not to run for re-election and instead start positioning herself for statewide office down the road? Is that a scenario that makes any sense to you at all? Well, I think there's several parts of your question To address the first part, I'm specifically talking about if there's a new Democratic district with no incumbent in it, like an extra Democratic district from what we have right now, which seems to be what the judge's order was calling for. I don't think it benefits anybody to being to to think about some sort of running against an incumbent or a member of Congress as it is. I don't think that's going to help anybody. I think to the last part of your question, it is so difficult to talk through hypotheticals without seeing where these maps are. And seeing what the judge says, because this could go, from my point of view, a thousand different directions. So mm-hmm. we have to do our best to be as prepared as possible. Okay, but certainly there's got to be at some point some thinking about whether 2026 could be for Lucy McBath more significant than 2024. <laughs> that could be one scenario. Well, I mean, I think I've certainly I've seen the reporting and you know heard her name floated, which is I think our reaction is. Very humbled. I mean, having to hear people say that and see that out there is, um, I think, 
more of an affirmation of the work she's been doing. And of course, I think that she's an incredibly compelling candidate um, for whatever she's doing now or in the future. But for right now, us, the team and the congresswoman are fully focused on this fight that we're in and what these maps look like. Jake, we got to hit a quick break. But before we do, I'm going to ask you two questions you don't want to answer. Um, but I'm going to ask you them anyway. The first is if these current maps hold and there's a there's a new district on the east side and there's the new district on the west side, which one do you think your boss is most likely to run for? I think those sorts of questions would have to be sorted out after the judge makes a decision. And again, from what all the legal experts are saying, people, there seems to be a consensus that these maps, except for the Republican legal experts, of course, but <laughs> there seems to be a consensus that these maps fly in the face of the judge's order. So you don't think the maps have hold? Secondly, you talked about all the exciting folks you've been hearing from who are thinking about running for Congress. Spill the beans. Uh, any names you can mention who have called you about running for, for office? I'll say, Greg, I have a feeling they're calling you as well. So I think we have an idea of the same <laughs> list. Um, you know, and, and I'll just... Again, I think personally, as somebody, as a Georgian, a Georgian who's been a Georgian all my life, as a voter, I think the future of the Georgia Democratic Party is incredibly bright. And I think uh, there are only good things to come. Jake, by the way, comes from Bullock County Democratic Royalty. His mother was the longtime chairwoman of the Bullock County Democratic Party. So, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for having me. Just ahead, Democrats in the state Senate were put on the spot by the Republican colleagues over a resolution calling for support for the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. The Georgia Senate voted overwhelmingly on Friday to express support for the Atlanta Police and Firefighter Training Center Complex, which has drawn a lot of opposition from environmentalists, left-leaning activists, and other critics of the $90 million project. We're joined now by our AJC colleague, Riley Bunch, who covers Atlanta City, High, Atlanta City Hall. Riley, thanks for joining us. Hey, Greg. Hey, Patricia and Bill. Of course, thanks for having me. Well, Riley, before we jump into this debate and this vote, I understand we have an update on how much the city of Atlanta has spent on litigation and the ongoing fight over referendum on this project. Can you fill us in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this has not been a cheap process for the city in terms of litigation against the training center, in terms of the teams of consultants and election experts that they've hired to help with the pending verification process, um, a review of some of the invoices and the contracts that we did show that they're well over $1.3 million in spending, um, which is interesting. And if you compare that to the $1.2 million it'll cost per year year for them to pay back the Atlanta Police Foundation during the lease. So they're well over the cost of the training center for a year. 
And what's the overall price tag now then, or does that add to the $90 million? Uh, that is that is just the litigation. Okay. So the ninety million dollars is the project itself. Um, the litigation is the one point three million, and the verification process is the one three point three million. Got it. Okay, so let's take a closer look at something that happened while we were on air on Friday's show. Governor Kemp and other Republicans have been calling on Democrats to take a stance on the public safety training center over and over again. On Friday, that was put to the test. The Georgia Senate held a vote which passed 46-5 in support of this complex. Even some of the Democrats who voted against it said they still support the project, but they just didn't like the wording of the resolution. But Riley, one of the goals of this vote was to put Democrats on the spot, potentially to be used in political campaigns down the road. Yeah, absolutely. This whole entire project and the debate around the project, the debate around the petition has really divided Democrats. And it's shown who's willing to speak out on it and who's willing to kind of, you know, take a more back end role and don't want to talk about it at all. And this resolution that we saw in the General Assembly um, last week, this week uh, is, you know, just together. I know. Oh, my gosh. You have no idea. I'm sure you do. (laughs) But it's been crazy. It just goes to show that, you know, state lawmakers, Republican lawmakers in particular, are not afraid of dipping their toes into this issue. You know, they want to expose the divides between Democrats when they can. And and it's interesting because I was at the Rotary of Atlanta yesterday and Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens said in just a few hours after his speech, he was heading up to the Gold Dome, too. I pressed him a little bit on who he would meet with. He said likely the speaker, the lieutenant governor, and just to keep an eye on issues that might pop up. So I'm curious to see if anything else regarding the training center will come during regular session, let alone special session. Riley, bring our audience up to speed about what exactly those political divisions are. Um, Obviously, uh, defund the police was a slogan Democrats really tried to discourage their own members from embracing in the 2022 elections. I think they feel like it cost them some really significant support. Um, But why? how has this become such a dividing issue among Democrats? And we did see a number of Democrats in uh, the state uh, legislature just take a walk on this, did not want to take a position at all. Yeah. And I think that the issues that they have with kind of taking a stance also boils down to how complicated the debate is itself. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. There's so many different reasons why people oppose the training facility from the environmental reasons to fear of uh, militarization of the police is something that we hear often. So Democrats who, you know, have stood up for some of these issues in the past are in a really tough spot when you have a Democratic mayor, you know, with uh, has a lot of support for the training facility, Tell says we want well-trained police, we want well-trained firefighters, but you know there are still calls from the left-leaning sides of the party for further police reform, right? So it puts them in a complicated position when they are standing up for these big issues like police reform, like for environmental, but this local training center kind of touches on everything. But Riley, of course, being in that position, Uh, for Democrats means that Republicans uh, can embrace, or at least they believe they can embrace, uh, their support for law enforcement and accuse Democrats of not standing up for the men and women in blue. Absolutely. And, you know, I I wonder on the back end if Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens had any idea this resolution was coming. I know state lawmakers have kind of 
inserted themselves into this issue in the past um, for the same purpose, right? You know, any division amount among the opposite party looks good for the GOP. So, you know, I, that makes me curious about how much um, Dickens gets a heads up when these things happen, because it really impacts his day to day and how he's going about this issue. So, Riley, um, given that we're fortunate enough to have you with us today, could could you help give us an update for our listeners? Where does the referendum stand now in terms of counting, in terms of actually putting it on the ballot? Just give us an update about what to expect in the weeks ahead. Well, we're kind of on pause right now in terms of the referendum effort. We there it is caught up in a court case, the one we have talked about in terms of the DeCab residents wanting to have a um, role in signature collection. So that court case has been going on for months, and there is a hearing coming up on December fourteenth to hear the sides in that case. I don't think we'll get a ruling that fast, but it could impact who counts on the petition and who doesn't based on the timeline, right? And the city has said that they will not the clerk's office will not start counting these petitions or going through the verification process until this court um, ruling. So, you know, we have the 25,000 pages of scanned documents. They're sitting under lock and key in the um, clerk's office. So it's kind of a little bit of a waiting game right now until we get that ironed out. Riley, the training center obviously passed the city council twice um, with a majority vote. But has there been any erosion of support on the city council with all of the controversy and the additional money that's being spent on legal fees? Do you sense any willingness on the city council to back away from this or consider tapping the brakes or anything that has made them support it less than they used to? I think for city council, um, the position that they find themselves in is it has passed multiple times through different seated council um, uh, bodies, and they don't really want to go back and touch it, right? You know, this is an issue that now is seeing this petition process that Atlanta has never gone through before. It's seeing all the courts that are having to weigh in on different aspects of it. Um, And it's not really, you know, something that city council members even want to revisit. I know there was talk yesterday at the city council meeting about potential legislation that would codify the petition process that was met by a lot of pushback um, from the administration. But it's just kind of something that, you know, it's like they have to sit there and listen to public comment and listen to people. People talk about how much they don't want it or they do want it on some occasions. And they're really just kind of in a position where they don't want to do anything more on it. Riley, I want to follow up on that because, you know, we've seen polls from allies of Governor Kemp and Mayor Dickens that show broad public support for the project. But of course, Riley, opponents say the thousands of signatures that they gathered for the referendum on the construction is proof enough of deep seated opposition to this complex. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that will be really interesting once, you know, analysis of the petitions come out is how many people have signed it because they're, you know, elected officials, the mayor, a time and time again have said, you know, it's just a small group of opponents that are the loudest online, right? You know, that is what they say over and over again. But if they're coming up with tens of thousands of signatures, that has to be some proof that, you know, there is widespread opposition to this. It'll be interesting to see where the layout of those signers also are, how they've 
vary across the city. Um, but that's something not to be ignored if they hit, you know, even if they fall under the threshold of needed petition or needed signers, which is around uh, 58,000 or so, that's still a lot of signers, right? Bar, and that's yeah. that, that's something they can't ignore, that there are people that care about this issue and are willing to sign a petition to put it on the ballot. So, Riley, I was interested when you talked about the $1.3 million that you've revealed in your piece uh, this morning that's been spent by the city for things like lawyers. You also included um, in that number uh, some kind of different kinds of consultants, perhaps, that have talked to the city about uh, what how to deal with a, a referendum, potential referendum. Um, and, but I'm wondering about the question of whether you have seen, uh, to any extent, an improvement in how people like the mayor, Mayor Dickens, are communicating about the importance of the police training center. Because we have said on this show on any number of occasions that one of the failures uh, early on in this project was first Mayor Bottoms, perhaps, then handed off to Mayor Dickens, the Atlanta Police Foundation itself, that communication on the value of this project um, was was a real problem early on. Have they gotten better? Are they using better language to describe why this is so important? And at this point, does that matter since apparently uh, m- m- a majority of people across the city may think, despite the signatures, it's worth building? Yeah. You know, the Dickens administration has said time and time again that they have lost control of the narrative. And I don't think there's a more true statement, right? You know, from the beginning, like you said, across administrations, there's just been a huge communication breakdown, um, not to just in terms of putting out materials, but, you know, access for press when the press has questions about the training center. I know that it's kind of this issue that they feel frustrated with, feel that there's a million other things that they want to talk about and a million and other initiatives that Dickens is doing that he wants front and center, right? Um, but I, the problem is that it was so, the communication was so off in the beginning, it's a matter of over-communicating now. You know, this they are stuck with this problem and it is their responsibility to continue to push their points um, because it has gotten so lost in all the debate. Yeah, and as this is, as it's certainly at the center of Mayor Dickens' first-term agenda, whether he likes it or not. Riley, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier too, which is that relations between city and state and how the mayor you know, met with state legislative leaders um, yesterday at the state capitol. And look, you know, we've talked and we've written so much about over the past few years the icier state relations with, with the city. Uh, mayor Dickens has tried to reset those relationships. But last year we saw the new lieutenant governor, Burt Jones, the president of the state Senate, push a buckhead cityhood that, of course, the city fought vigorously. And in the past, he's also pushed what we always call the airport takeover, giving the state more oversight and control over Atlanta's crown jewel, Hartsfield Jackson International (coughs) Airport. Do you see a thawing of the relationship, a better, uh, closer ties between the mayor, not just with the governor, which we've documented, but also with legislative leaders? Well, I mean, he's definitely putting his best foot forward, right? Um, That is the mayor in terms of repairing these relations. We heard from the moment that he was elected, he was calling, you know, late Speaker Ralston to talk to him about things that he wants happening in the legislature. And his, the Dickens administration did give a presentation to council last week in terms of the things they do and don't want lawmakers to do under the gold dome this year. You know, um, Greg, you mentioned a couple of them, airport takeover. They're worried that anything like 
like that will come up. Um, bills that have criminalized homelessness in the past, they're concerned about that. And then also the Buckhead Cityhood bills. You know, I asked the mayor about that specifically yesterday, um, if he's concerned about Buckhead Cityhood coming back. And he says that he thinks that he faced the most pressure on that last year. And hopefully that has been squashed for this year. But you never know when you see things like the training center resolution coming up in the Senate during a special session that has to do with redistricting. Anything is fair game. And I think that Dickens is knows that and is trying to get ahead of it. Okay, Riley, I could spend the rest of the show talking about uh, Buckhead City potential, yay or nay, could it happen? <laughs> <laughs> but one more question on the training center. Um, with all of this protest and maybe petitions, maybe not, resolutions, yes or no, I mean, this is well under construction. What happens if any petition passes or a resolution passes that says stop, stop building? I mean, the last year report, it was 40 percent constructed already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the first of the year, they're going to have vertical buildings being constructed, right? So it's not just the infrastructure, the water sewage system and the paving. We're going to have actual physical buildings, um, which is something, you know, I've asked and a number of our reporters have asked APD and the mayor's administration, how are they going to um, secure that, right? But this project, it is moving forward full steam. There may be court cases, there may be this petition effort, but the city is really banking on that nothing is going to stop it. And that is a huge question, Patricia, is what happens if, you know, these are hypotheticals, right? If the petition process is successful, if any of the court cases are successful, there's not just the DeKalb resident court case, but also an environmental one, too, that has involved the EPA. You know, what if those stop this facility? What is it going to look like mm -hmm. out there? Is it just going to be an empty facility in the middle of, you know, this four? It, this is a huge question that we haven't gotten a lot of answers on, but it's pretty mind boggling to think about. Yeah, we got to take a quick break. But Riley, before we let you go, there's another Big question looming over this legislative session is not getting as much attention, but a Georgia Supreme Court ruling earlier this year paved the way for these types of referendums. But lawmakers, I expect lawmakers to revisit this legislation. Even one of the concurring opinions in this Supreme Court ruling said lawmakers should, should take action or else there could be a wave of new referendums. So how much do you hear city lawmakers and the opponents uh, of this project talk about that potential referendum? Well, not only is it, you know, state law in this referendum process, but there's no clarification in city code or, um, you know, local governments how to run this process. And I think that that's a huge issue that we've seen with the clerk's office and their explanations about how they're going to verify signers is there just really isn't any guidance. And like you said, Greg, this has been through Georgia court cases before. Um, so it is clearly something that needs to be revisited. Do I think that the Dickens administration wants it revisited right now at this point to change kind of the rules of the game in terms of verification and petition process. I don't think that would yeah. probably be beneficial for them, but it's definitely something that we'll get debate and talk under the Gold Dome. Well, Riley Bunch, AJC City Hall reporter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. When we come back, we'll shift to the 2024 presidential race and the fourth Republican debate to be held tomorrow night in neighboring Alabama. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements. 
are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to the AJC's Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein, along with Patricia Murphy and Bill Nygut. Okay, guys, before we go to the next subject, the next theme, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we wrote in the newsletter this morning, the newsletter formerly known as The Jolt, uh, how Republicans <laughs> are using this legislative session to go on the offense. We just talked about the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center referendum, but Patricia, they're also redrawing political boundaries to preserve Republican majorities, and they're forcing votes on issues like the war in Israel to put Democrats on the record as well. Yeah, they are really jamming Democrats in this session. Uh, the special session is meant to be extremely narrowly tailored. Uh, we're going to deal with one issue and one issue only. But when you have resolutions pop in, when you have Governor Brian Kemp holding a massive press conference um, about a tax proposal that he's going to be introducing, they've used this entire past week as just one messaging opportunity. And you walk away with just the undeniable knowledge that Democrats just don't have the votes to pass this stuff right now or to, to block it rather. So um, can the maps pass? Yes, if the Republicans want it to. Can the resolutions pass? Yes, if the Republicans want it to. Even though this is a very narrowly divided state, um, this is not uh, as much a narrowly divided legislature because Republicans, it just feels like every day in the building, hold all the cards and they are really using them heading into 2024. Yeah. That's what I've really been struck by, really pushing these message bills, um, really pushing Democrats to go on the record on Israel, really pushing them on Cop City, making them take votes they don't want to during a special session is really a major power play. Um, and I think it will be effective for them uh, to to the extent that they want it to be heading into 2024. They've got a lot of um, votes on the board already to start talking about. Yeah. And of course, um, we may be a fairly evenly divided state in terms of this, you know, voters out there. But gerrymandering gives uh, Republicans uh, dominance of both uh, the House and the Senate and gives them the opportunity to do what they've done. And uh, I think Patricia and Greg um, uh, one of the resolutions that I was particularly interested in uh, is the resolution in which uh, they asked legislators to agree that Hamas uh, showed, quote, a disgusting display of hatred and evil in their October 7th attack on uh, Israel. And um, I I'm fascinated by the fact I don't know if fascinated is the right word. There were any number of Democrats who refused to go along with that measure yesterday. And I understand that there are complications in many ways for people. They worry about the civilian casualties in um, uh, uh, Gaza City. Um, but it strikes me that, and, and maybe I don't know the whole resolution, and, and you two can help me better understand it, but to declare that the Hamas attacks were a display of evil uh, strikes me as being a relatively straightforward matter. Yeah, and Bill, you're talking about a House resolution that passed 129 to 2 yesterday, <clears throat> excuse me, um, with, of course, you know, overwhelming support. But the underlying theme of that of that vote was 30 Democrats, at least 30 
abstained from the vote yeah. and about a dozen or so more um, declared themselves uh, absent from that vote. So there was a clear underlying tension there that we've talked about a lot on mm-hmm. the show, which is polls showing that overwhelming support for Israel from both parties. But as you look at the Democratic Party, that rift is much more um, divisive over Israel as you get to younger and more liberal right. and more racially diverse voters, um, especially here in Georgia. And that's what Republicans were keying on yeah. because that resolution on its face, it made it really hard for Democrats to say no to because it did condemn Hamas and the terror attack and said it support Israel. But there was other parts of that resolution that Democrats took issue with. One was there was no mention of any of the Palestinian civilians killed in the conflict and it also said uh, there was also a line about the brave Israeli soldiers that some of the Democrats objected to. So in the end, Patricia, we saw very few Democrats vote against it, but we saw a number of them take the well to say that they had issues with with the resolution's wording and end up not voting for it either way. Yeah, the language in the resolution was very straightforward, but the politics for Democrats mm-hmm. are extremely, extremely complicated. There uh, was a recent Gallup poll that came out that showed that 69 percent of Democrats under 35 disapprove of the way the United States has handled the war um, between Israel and Hamas. Um, that is just a, a tectonic shift in public opinion among the voters that Democrats most want to court and to keep. And so they are in a real bind here, not to mention the fact that particularly in the uh, state house, I mean, that and the state Senate, those Democratic caucuses are quite diverse. There are a number of uh, Muslims. There are a number, uh, at least one Palestinian American, uh, a lot of sympathies um, on both sides of this issue that just are are very different from the type of democratic politics that we've seen in uh you know in the last several decades. And you know Patricia of course our own poll uh showed that more than 40% or just about 40% of uh democrats said they do not think that american support for israel is in our country's best interest. That is talk about a tectonic shift. There was a time when there would be no question that um, most Americans would say that supporting Israel is in the mo- is in the best interest of the country. And folks, these this issue is not going away. Uh, Kemp's Governor Kemp's top political advisor Cody Hall sent a tweet out yesterday saying, "I'm quoting him: If you're a Georgia Democrat who walked on this vote because you thought doing so wouldn't hurt you at the ballot box, think again. It is coming to mailers uh, soon to them." Um, and, uh, you know, expect Republicans to continue to take action to demonstrate their unity for support for Israel while trying to expose Democratic divides. And I really do think this session is putting that on display as we see Republicans take the offense. And look, this is a session that was supposed to kind of just singularly focus on redrawing the political maps. And instead, it is taking a very political bent in another direction. OK, I want to get to another topic because another one has bitten the dust. Q Republican Queen, Q Queen. <laughs> is narrowing the North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum dropped out of the race. He was the longest of the long shots, but the long expected winnowing of the race has begun. Bill, I think we thought it would begin a long time ago, but now we've got Tim Scott out and you got Mike Pence out. Now you've got Doug Burgum out. Just as attention is shifting here to the South, 
with the debate in Tuscaloosa that's on tap for tomorrow night. Yeah, and you're going to be there. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's wonderful that we're going to get a, a report from you after the debate uh, is over with. But um, it, not only do we have Bergam dropping out, but uh, the New York Times this morning ran a piece that uh, points out that there's increasing pressure on Chris Christie to drop out of the race. He's, his numbers are in single digits. He's holding out in hopes that New Hampshire will resuscitate his campaign. Um, but there's increasing pressure saying... Christy, get out of there. Throw your support to Nikki Haley uh, because she, in fact, is somebody who could have some momentum moving forward. And Christy, of course, is resolute in saying he's in it through New Hampshire. He is, on the other hand, though, for the first time saying he'll see what happens in New Hampshire. He will no longer uh, necessarily say he's in it all the way through the primary season. So that's a, an interesting step uh, in a different direction for Christie. Yeah, he's taking a major gamble on New Hampshire, and he'll be one of the only four candidates on the debate mm-hmm. stage tomorrow. That's the first time we've had this small of a debate field. Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy will be the only ones on stage. And of course, Patricia, uh, not a surprise at all, Donald Trump will once again skip the showdown. But at least this time he's not doing a counter-programming with a big rally. Instead, he's holding a small fundraiser. Yes, as far as we know, we'll have to wait to see what Donald Trump's plans are (laughs) once he actually does what he's going to do. But, you know, I think that history has a couple different um, opposing lessons for these candidates. Um, Joe Biden lost Iowa and New Hampshire and became the president. Um, He was polling very, very low in Iowa and people were telling him to drop out and saying, you should let people, you should let the stronger, younger candidates take the field. That's not what voters wanted. It turns out even democratic voters. Um, He ended up consolidating that field and winning. And I think we just have to let some of these votes get cast. Iowa and New Hampshire are such different kinds of voters, even though they're basically all white, practically. It's a really different mindset and mentality among those uh, voters for uh, Republicans. And um, then to see it come south, can Nikki Haley do any damage to Donald Trump in her very own state? You know, I think these are important questions. Chris Christie is very strong in New Hampshire right now. Um, I understand why he wants to stay in. Maybe he thinks he can get a bounce out of New Hampshire and, you know, kind of bounce all the way to the end of this thing. Uh, He's also said so many negative things about Nikki Haley. I don't know how he goes back on that to throw his support behind her other than to say it's for the greater good and get rid of Donald Trump. Um, But I think uh, so much changes between this time of the month and the actual caucuses being held and ballots being cast. And I think we all want to kind of guess what's going to happen and make it happen. But voters surprise us frequently. And Mm -hmm. so that's the part that I'm looking forward to the most. I want to ask both of you a question, because as we get closer to this debate, um, this might be the the last RNC sponsored debate, but there's talk about even more debates sponsored by other groups. We, look, we saw a weird one last week here in Atlanta between Ron DeSantis and California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, but we might see some more debates featuring act, the actual Republican contenders going head to head. But Bill, without Donald Trump on the ballot, uh, uh, sorry, without Donald Trump on the roster, yeah. if he continues to kind of skip all these debates, 
will any of this matter? Because we've already seen these debates kind of come and go like flickering flames and then, you know, get lost in the uh, in the news cycle. Well, your question is exactly what the RNC is debating this week. They, they by the way, hope to make a decision by the end of the week as to whether they will allow uh, independent debates to move forward. And right now, the question is, they believe uh, that um, by limiting the number of debates, they make them marquee events um, that will get big viewerships. And they are a little concerned that uh, if they are, uh, if other organizations are allowed to stage a number of debates, they won't get a great deal of attention. But you make the best point in terms of that, Greg. Without a Donald Trump, do even these RNC debates, these limited debates, are they really marquee events or are they seen by many viewers out there as also Rand's just arguing with one another? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we definitely <laughs> seen news come out of these debates, Patricia. Uh, you know, especially look look a couple of weeks ago when Nikki Haley called Vivek Ramaswamy, I think I'm quoting her right, scum yeah. for bringing up her adult teen or her adult daughter's use of uh, TikTok. <laughs> Uh, so we've seen Nikki Haley gain traction, we think, at least in part because of her strong debate uh, performances. So they're not worthless, <laughs> but in many ways, they're getting declining viewership. They're not commanding the media cycle because Donald Trump's not involved. Yeah, and I think they're doing more and more damage to the RNC every time one of these happens because we have their leading candidate, their most likely nominee, skipping all of these debates, um, ignoring the RNC's please to please, please come do these debates. Um, It has not made a difference in his poll numbers. Republican voters couldn't give two hoots, apparently, (laughs) if he's willing to debate or not debate against these second, third, and fourth tier candidates. And so I think it starts to really ask an existential question of what is the purpose of the RNC if your own leading candidate is not playing along and it doesn't cost him a bit. Yeah. And and meanwhile, Donald Trump is uh, continuing to mock his rivals. Bill, he compared Ron DeSantis just the other day, his campaign to a wounded bird. So, you know, he's not ignoring his rivals like he used to, but he, but he is uh, he is gleefully uh, cheering on their declining poll numbers. Yeah, and DeSantis's numbers definitely uh, continue to uh, be moribund. It's interesting, I think, uh, Greg and Patricia, that the bounce that the DeSantis people hoped they would get out of the their strange confrontation with Gavin Newsom was going to do some good for them. I haven't seen any polling since then, but I don't think, I think I'm correct that it doesn't look like he's, uh, his, his super PAC continues to fall apart and he doesn't seem to be raising a lot of money as a result of his Newsom encounter. Yes, that was not the cure for the many, many, (laughs) many fissures in his campaign. Talking to a California Democrat didn't really solve all all his problems. But I did. I do like the idea of two candidates debating one on one. I find that very helpful. Um, If you can get somebody who can control them, I think it just gets a lot more information out of these guys instead of saying, everybody raise your hand, yes or no. I think these have just gotten to the point of farce at a certain point. And Bill, that's why I'm actually looking forward to tomorrow night's debate with just four candidates. It should be a little more clarifying. I don't know. Greg, Greg, I would, I would, I would tend to agree with you, except that Vivek Ramaswamy will still be on the stage and ha- has a way of dominating conversations when many people wish he wouldn't. <laughs> 
At least there will be some fireworks between him and Nikki Haley. Okay, that is about all the time we have for today's show. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow at 10 for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. <laughs> <laughs>